The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I don't suppose, and you've heard me already say this in the previous uh, messages, three messages introducing the Ten Commandments, that I, I don't know if there's a series that I've been more excited about preaching than this. And that's because as I, as I study the commandments each week, and I'm a little bit ahead of you uh, preparing for these things, and so I'm learning as I go. And it's always good when the preacher can learn something, too. The deeper I get into it, the more that I learn and learn how to give the truth of God's word to you. It's helpful to me. And I'm really thankful to the Lord for just the opportunity that we have to study this great subject. I'd like you to open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. And today we uh, complete our exposition of the first two verses of this chapter. This is the preface of the Ten Commandments. And in these verses is found the reason that the Ten Commandments are the most important document that the world has ever seen. As you look in history, you'll find that there are several documents that have shaped the laws of nations. One of the earliest ones is the Code of Hammurabi that comes from Babylon, and it was made in the year 1754 B.C., Historians are very impressed with that document because uh, it contains some of the very same laws that are bases for the laws that we have today. And yet also historians uh, look at that and they see in it that there was probably more of an exaltation of King Habarabi. It was more for that purpose than it was actually for the good of the people. A document that you might be more familiar with is the Magna Carta which is considered to be one of the most significant charters, uh, especially in its time and also today. Uh, what the Magna Carta did was to reform the feudal system in England in the 13th century. And that particular doctrine had great influence on two other very important documents 500 years later, which was the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution of the United States. And those are unquestionably significant pieces of legislation, but those fall far short of the extent of the influence of the Ten Commandments. That's because the commandments are not for the governing of one nation, but these are commandments that are given for the government of all nations of all time. Now, the Constitution of the United States is a great document. I think all of us as Americans, we're... We're proud to live under that Constitution. We are very concerned when there's anybody who tries to take away or change parts of that Constitution that we depend on. Wouldn't you agree with me? We don't want anybody to do that. It's a very, very significant document, but as great as it is, it's not a force of law on anybody but those who live in the United States. It doesn't affect anybody that's outside of the United States. But the Ten Commandments are much different because they affect people all over the world. Every person of all time is affected by the Ten Commandments. And these commandments will be the commandments that we live by until Christ comes again. And then interestingly, when Jesus enters into the Millennial Kingdom, it will still be the standard of law. 
This is the law by which all people are going to be judged. God is going to reckon with sinners based upon what we find in the Ten Commandments. So there isn't a document, never has been a document, there never will be a document that is is as important as the Ten Commandments. Now the influence of the Ten Commandments is seen in, in the laws of practically every nation of the world. Even if you talk about tyrannical regimes... There are times that there are laws that they enforce that fall back on the Ten Commandments. Now, many things in those governments are very, very bad, and the only good in them many times is when they do fall back on laws that God authored. And I think that it's sad that in many expositions of the Ten Commandments that uh, people fail to deal with these two verses in Exodus 20, these first two verses, because here is actually the reason for their significance. We must know these two verses. And what we learn here is that these are words that are spoken by God. Now the chapter begins this way. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which hath brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. God spoke. And what he said became the basis of the laws of governments in all parts of the world. God spoke, and his words were laws for Israel. God spoke, and it became an established covenant between him and those people in particular. And God said that he would judge them by these laws, that he would secure blessings unto them according to their commitment and their faithfulness to keep its conditions. God spoke. And despite our differences, his words are the only common bond that exists between Jews and Roman Catholics and Protestants and Baptists. We might not have much else in common, and we certainly do believe in a different purpose for the law than these other groups. But all of us agree on this one thing, that the law is the basis of God's judgment. Now, in the last message, we began by talking about how prevalent that God's law is throughout the Scriptures. I mentioned to you then that how the Ten Commandments teach us about love. And God is love. That's what the Word of God says. God is love. So we would expect that if the Ten Commandments are about love, that we would see it consistently throughout the Scriptures. So the first thing that we talked about was the appellations of the law. That is the names by which the law is known. So when you read through the Bible and you see these different kinds of names, you'll know that the Scripture is talking about this law that God gave. Now, most commonly, it's known as the Ten Commandments. That is the title of the series that we're teaching, the Ten Commandments. In the original Hebrew, that is the Ten Words. And if you were to look at it in a Greek Old Testament... Uh, the translation of it is the Decalogue. It's also called the words of the covenant and the words of the Lord. It's known as the testimony and the tables of stone. It's known as precepts and statutes. Those are all names that are used in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, it's often referred to simply as commandments. Uh, It became so familiar in the time of Jesus and in our time that all we have to do is say commandments. And everybody knows what you're talking about. It's the Ten Commandments that you're speaking of. Then we also discuss, secondly, the the author of the law. Verse number 1 says, And God spake all these words 
Now, chapter 19 ends with Moses speaking to the people. Chapter 20 begins with God speaking to them. And there isn't any doubt that they heard something from God because we go down and we look at verses 18 and 19. And there we see the shock and the awe of the people hearing directly from God. And it was so frightening to them that they asked Moses to intercede. They said, Moses, you speak to God and then you talk to us. Don't let us speak to God directly. Well, the mountain quaked, there was thunder and there was lightning. The voice of God was deafening like a shofar that was blowing so loudly and powerfully that it hurt the ears almost, so they dared not approach God. And I think that we would do well to have the same respect that they had for hearing God speak because God speaks as loudly to us and as surely to us today as He did then. And the way that God speaks to us is through the Bible, through His Word. And if we had respect for God's voice, which is what we're hearing in the Word, then it would certainly change our attitude towards it. It would change the way that we obey it, I think, if we really believe that we heard God speak whenever we open the pages of the Bible. Now, the important point that I want you to see is that when Moses went up on that mountain, that he didn't spend 40 days there chiseling his own words into tables of stone. These are words that God spoke. Moses could never have conceived how he could make ten statements that would be as far-reaching as what God said, that it would reach every part of man, every conceivable act of morality is covered. Moses could never fathom that he could put together these supreme principles of law and then, at the same time, make its overarching theme about love. Now, the Ten Commandments may seem harsh to us at time, but they're actually the definition of real love. Real love is to know God. Real love is to obey God, to honor God, and then, in the process of doing that, it is to express our love and concern for our neighbor and to treat our neighbors as we want to be treated. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the expression, the practical expression of God's love in the world. And so we have to know God, we have to start there, we have to obey Him, obey the commandments, and then we begin to treat each other as we should. And by the way, I, I just have to say that the members of Berean Baptist Church have shown that they love God's law, they show that they obey the law, and I see it in the way that we have reached out in these past few weeks to help those that are members of our church that are in need. That shows that you honor God's law, that you love your neighbor, you love your fellow Christians as you should. And we often talk about uh, the Ten Commandments as being the laws of Moses. Now, the Bible also refers to it that way. It says it refers to it as the laws of Moses, but we do need to understand that Moses is only a mediator. Just as God said, and just as the people wanted, Moses was a mediator between them and God to deliver these tablets of stone that are given on Mount Sinai. Now, it's God who spoke. Remember that. It's God who spoke. The creator of heaven and earth, the one who has all authority, all authority over all the world and all its creatures, spoke. And the greatest legislative bodies of the world could never do what God did, and that is to give us a perfect law. Now, I want to focus for the next few minutes on the third observation about God's law, which is the authority of the law. 
Verse number 2 begins, I am the Lord thy God. God is the authority. He is the creator. He made man, and he made us moral creatures. And the stamp of his authority was in us from the very beginning. Uh, his matchless wisdom makes him the authority. 1 Timothy 1 verse 17 says, Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We sang that just a moment ago, didn't we? Immortal, invisible. This is the only wise God. Now notice the descriptions in the middle of that verse. Uh, the first adjectives are grand adjectives. They are eternal, immortal, invisible. And then this, the only wise God. Now in your Bibles, you might want to underline that or circle it as being very significant. He has authority because he is the only wise God. We can't argue with him. We can't argue with his righteousness because he is the only wise God. Now, I'd like you to notice three very important words that tell you why that you should listen to God. There's no argument about this. Why should you listen to God? These three words that I want to give you tell you why the Ten Commandments should still be on the walls of our courthouses, why it still should be in the classrooms of our public schools, this tells you why that you should still be in awe of God when He speaks. First, because He is eternal God. Now look at the way that He describes Himself in our text. I am the Lord. Now there He states His name. And His name is the ground of His authority. Deuteronomy 28 verse 58. If thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that thou mayest fear this glorious and fearful name, the Lord thy God. And then that section goes on to describe warnings of plagues and of pestilence and of problems, because God's name is a fearful name. Now you should know that when you see LORD in all capital letters in your King James Version, that that is actually the official name of God. That is his official name. It's the name of unquestionable authority. And it stands for Jehovah. The name by which God said, I will be known to my people. Now that name first appears in Exodus chapter 6. I'd like you to turn there if you would. And we're going to look at these important verses. And you should mark this very important place in, your, in the scriptures where you find this name Jehovah. Exodus chapter 6 and in verse number 2. And God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. And I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty, but by my name Jehovah was I not known to them. This then is the first time that God tells them what his true name is, that he is Jehovah God. Now, turn back a few more pages to chapter 3, and this is the time when Moses had his first encounter with God. Chapter 3 is their first meeting. Interestingly, it occurred at the very same place that we're reading in chapter 20. It was at Horeb. That is the same thing as Sinai. And in Exodus chapter 3, verse number 1, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. 
And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called unto him out of the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here am I. And he said, Draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet, for the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. Moreover, he said, I am the God of thy father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look upon God. Now Moses talked to God in that burning bush. And in verse number 6, God said to him, I am. And there you might want to circle that, underline that, I am. And then God began to lay out what he was going to do with Israel. And then we come to verse number 13. And here Moses wants to know the name of God. Who shall I tell the people has spoken to me? Exodus 3, verse 13, And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. And God said, Moreover, unto Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath sent me unto you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial unto all generations. God said, I am that I am. And in that name is the expression of God's eternality. It's in the present tense. It doesn't say, I was. It doesn't say, I shall be. It says, I am that I am. And there we find the self-existent, eternal God. There is no past or future with Him. God is. God just is. Now, in other words, God says, I exist. And in the 15th verse, He says, this is my name forever. That is the statement of his authority. He is eternal God. He is the only wise God. That eternality makes him omniscient. The authority upon which he speaks is his own name. Now let me show you how significant that is. The psalmist wrote, Psalm 138, I will worship toward thy holy temple and praise thy name for thy loving kindness and for thy truth. For thou hast magnified thy word above all thy name. Now, that verse means that when you contend with the Word of God that you are contending with, struggling against the eternally existent I Am. He speaks with the authority of His name, and His Word is equal to that authority. Now, the Supreme Court plays with the authority of God when it says, remove the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments is God reaching down to help man and we push back at him only to bring destruction upon ourselves. Now secondly, you should be in awe of God when he speaks because he is the sovereign God. Inherent in these words, I am the Lord is his divine sovereignty. 
Well, I know that that word sovereignty is bandied about by many who hardly know what it means. They use it, they give lip service to it, but their doctrine shows that they have little to no understanding of what it means. Just what is God's sovereignty? First Chronicles 29, verse 11, explains, Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and power and glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Now let me quote to you from Arthur Pink in his book, The Sovereignty of God. I wish that I could read all of this to you because it's rich. And here's the part of the definition that he gives of the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. What do we mean by this expression? We mean the supremacy of God. The kingship of God. The godhood of God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that God is God. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the Most High, doing according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, so that none can stay His hand or say unto Him, What doest thou? To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the Almighty, the possessor of all power in heaven and earth, so that none can defeat His counsels, thwart His purpose, or resist His will. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the governor among the nations, setting up kingdoms, overthrowing empires, and determining the course of dynasties as pleaseth Him best. To say that God is sovereign is to declare that He is the only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Such is the God of the Bible. The sovereignty of God of Scripture is absolute, irresistible, infinite. When we say that God is sovereign, we affirm His right to govern the universe, which He has made for His own glory, just as He pleases. We affirm that His right is the right of the potter over the clay. That is that he may mold that clay into whatsoever form he chooses, fashioning out of the same lump one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. We affirm that he is under no rule of law outside of his own will and nature, that God is a law unto himself, and that he is under no obligation to give an account of his matters to any. Sovereignty characterizes the whole being of God. He is sovereign in all his attributes, he is sovereign in the exercise of His power. His power is exercised as He wills, when He wills, where He wills. If you don't have a copy of that book, The Sovereignty of God, you ought to get one. The understanding of your, your understanding of God will just exponentially increase if you read that book. And you'll see why the modern pulpit really has no idea what it means that God is sovereign. So I can't describe that better to you than pink. And so I'll just leave it at this. That God does what He wants. He does all that He wants whenever He wants. He is God. Obedience to Him is His will. It is His command. He is the sovereign God. And so we bow to His will. We obey His commands for one reason. No other explanation is needed than this. I am the Lord. Then thirdly, you should listen to what God says and be in awe of Him when He speaks for the very best reason of all. And that is because He is the Redeemer. Verse number 2, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You should listen to His words because they're best for you. They're never going to harm you. 
They'll always help you. And consider those words very carefully. God says, I am the Lord, thy God. Now, if you're not too much attuned to the old English, let me help you out a little bit on that. He's saying, I am the Lord, your God. Your. That means that's personal to you. He speaks to you. Now, you can forget for just a minute about what the person next to you is hearing right now. God speaks to you. He's speaking to you right now. And what he says to you will always help you. You know why? Because in these words are actually found a relationship. 2 Corinthians 6.18 And will be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. We have a relationship with God as our Father. And I want you to understand that, that I'm speaking to you as Moses spoke to the people of God. I mean, he was speaking to people who truly did believe that God is their God. And what that means to you is that God is not speaking to you as a Father unless you have Jesus Christ as your Savior. That's the only ones that God speaks to as a Father. Now, you have a relationship with this father, and the father is a perfect father. He, he always cares for his children. You receive his watch care. You get his providence. You, you get his provisions. Jesus summed it up this way. He says in Luke 12, If then God so clothed the grass which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith? And seek not ye what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind. For all these things do the Gentiles, or nations of the world, seek after. And your Father knoweth that ye have need of these things. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. And isn't that the real provision of the law? Seek the righteousness of God, seek to obey His law, and these things will be added to you. The righteousness of Christ, of God, is found in Christ, and Christ was perfectly obedient to the law. Do these things, and they shall be added unto you. Now also understand that the relationship that we have with the Father is an everlasting one. Isaiah 9 verse 6 tells us that He is the everlasting Father. Now the law of God is never going to hurt you. It shows God's supreme love and His care for you. He's the Redeemer. He's the one who delivers you. He is the God of comfort and of mercy. He doesn't reach out to slap you down with the law. He commands you to show you that He alone is able to redeem you from your failure to keep it. God is your God. And that means that He's not far off. He's near to us. He promises to provide and to protect. And you can hear His words speaking to you from the pages of the Bible. And that ought to help you to understand why we are so concerned about what we do here. About teaching the Word of God. We glorify God in His Word. He is eternal. He is sovereign. And He is our Redeemer. We must listen to Him and be in awe of His words. Now let's move on then to discuss the fourth proposition. And that is the attributes of the law. The attributes of the law distinguish it from all other documents and make it the greatest writing that man possesses. What is it that makes the law so great? Well, it's great because God spoke it, of course. But let's look at its inherent characteristics. First, the law is perfect. Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. 
Perfection in that verse means more than it has no defects. Now, because the great I am is the one who gave it, of course, it has no defects. But that's not really what the psalmist is talking about here. When he says that the word of God is perfect, he means that it is complete, that it's entire, that it contains everything that you would ever need to know how to live. There is nothing that needs to be added to this because the Ten Commandments cover it all. Ecclesiastes 12.13 says, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. These ten words, these ten statements are the whole duty of man. In the law is everything that you are to do. And if you get these two critical parts of the summary of the law, that you are to love God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and then you are to love your neighbor as yourself, you have completed the entire duty of man. This is what it's all about. This is why we're here. This is it. Love God and love your fellow man. There isn't anything that needs to be added to that. There's no human preferential practices that need to be added to that. No sacraments, no popish traditions, no legislation that even Baptists would make need to be added to that. It is perfect. It's entire. It is complete. Then the law is spiritual. The law is more than just a code of conduct for the outward person. It's more than stop lying, stop cheating, stop cursing. It's more than stop doing physical things or do physical things. The law is also spiritual. That means that it goes down into the inner part of man, into the soul, to the spiritual part of man. The law goes down into the thoughts and the intents of the heart. As Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And if the law of God has not reached down that far into you, then the law hasn't done you any good. John Gill wrote in The Body of Divinity, The law directs not only to an external worship of God, but to an internal spiritual one as to love the Lord, fear Him, and put trust and confidence in Him suitable to His nature as a spirit. It requires of man to serve it with his own mind and spirit. Now there is a... There's an interesting point that's made by Pink when he said that there is no other law that has professed to govern the spirit of man. No one has ever tackled this problem to think that they could make a law that would touch the spirit of man. Now, can you imagine that a government official would try that? I'm going to give you a law. That's going to affect your spirit. It's going to talk to the holiness and the spiritual part of you. That's what my law is going to do. Well, we know a man can't do that. Nobody can deal with the soul. Who's the only one that can do it? John 2, John wrote, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Only God knows the sincerity of your heart. He alone sees your spirit. He alone is able to reach down beyond the external man to the spirit. Now, the law is spiritual. If all that it ever did for you was to give you external obedience of how you might dress or how you could reform yourself and spruce yourself up, then you've not felt the true effect of the law. Thirdly, the law is holy. 
Romans 7 verse 12, Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. The law is the expression of the character of God. I want you to get this fine distinction in its meaning. Right is not right because God wills it. God wills it because it is right. And so therefore, there must be a standard of righteousness before the law was ever given. The law doesn't establish righteousness. There is righteousness because God himself is righteous. That's the character of God. So whatever God says is holy because God is holy. Holiness is the ethical character of God. And that helps you to see the great disaster of taking down the Ten Commandments and getting rid of them because with it goes our ethics. Ethics go out if we don't have the Ten Commandments. Ethical standards become a book of judges problem where people just do what's right in their own eyes. Now the standard of righteousness is God's character expressed in His law. His law is holy because He is holy. Fourthly, the law is just. Wherefore the law is holy... And the commandment, holy and just and good. Now, aren't we a nation that insists on justice? Every one of us wants to be sure that we get our fair shake. Recently, we've heard of this political movement, Black Lives Matter. I'm not going to speak to the ethos of that statement. But I will say that what it is, is a plea for everyone to be treated the same under the law. Now, we're very upset if a celebrity get special treatment. Oh, we're upset because Hillary Clinton doesn't get put in jail for the same, breaking the same laws that would land us in prison. Well, we think everybody should be treated the same under the law. That's, that's right, isn't it? And that's exactly the way that God's law works. It treats every person the same. Your bank account doesn't matter. Your, your celebrity status doesn't matter to God. He condemns the guilty. And he exonerates the just. He punishes the guilty, and he frees the innocent. He always gives justice according to a person's works. He condemns the guilty, justifies the righteous. Fifthly, the law is good. Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. God himself is good by giving us the law. Now, his law is always profitable. Thomas Watson wrote, What strange creatures... Man would be, if he had no law to direct him, there would be no living in the world. We should have none born but Ishmael's. Every man's hand would be against his brother. Man would grow wild if he had not affliction to tame him and the moral law to guide him. The law of God is a hedge to keep us within the bounds of sobriety and piety. Oh, there's some strong political comments that I could make about that, but... Uh, If you don't understand why I say that, you can ask me about it later. Watson was English, but he described perfectly the problem that we have in America today. We have rejected the goodness of God in giving us His law, and what that does is leave us complaining that people act like wild animals. And we see that whether it's the sexual revolution or whether you read it in your paper every day with a mass shooting, it seems like happens all the time, going on every single day, it seems like. What's happened? We removed the law and now man is wild, just like Watson said. You removed the law as a moral guide. You removed the law to show us what to do and man becomes wild. There's no control, there's no restraint, and sin takes over. You know, folks, we're actually looking at a post 
resurrection of Christ and post uh, coming again of Christ type of world, even right now? What, is, what does the Bible say is going to happen during the tribulation time? The Holy Spirit will be taken away from His restraints that's put upon sin, and men become wild, disobeying the law of God. Now, the law is defined by its attributes. These attributes, perfection, spirituality, holiness, justice, and goodness. And can I add one more thought for you? The law does not contain the attribute of mercy. There is no mercy in the law. The law is very rigid at this point. The law never demands mercy because there's none in it. For mercy, you have to go to Jesus Christ. You have to receive grace, the grace of God in Jesus Christ to have that mercy. Now finally, in our introduction to the Ten Commandments, I want you to see what the law does. Stay with me just a few more minutes and we'll try to finish. That is the activities of the law. The law itself requires action. And when we speak of the obedience of Christ, if you want a little theology today, if I haven't already given you some, you might want to just make some notes here for a moment. When we speak of the obedience of Christ, we speak of it in two parts. We talk about his passive obedience and his active obedience. His passive obedience was to do the will of his father in allowing himself to become a sacrifice for sin. His passive obedience caused him to humble himself to the death of the cross. But did you know that the passive obedience of Christ is not enough? That's not enough to save you because he must also be actively obedient. So we also speak of the active obedience of Christ. And this is where Christ actually submitted himself to the law to, to keep it all in all of its demands. And that was necessary for him to earn the righteousness that we need, that he could give to us, because you can't be saved if you don't keep the law perfectly. And you can't keep the law perfectly. And so what Christ did was to keep it perfectly for you, so that by faith, that righteousness that he earned is given to you. Now, the law contains positive and negative actions. When it says, thou shalt, it also implies the opposite, thou shalt not do the other. For example, the fourth commandment says, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And so it implies, you shall not forget the Sabbath and profane the Sabbath. And you need to remember that because there's a lot of church members that just don't get that commandment at all, do they? When it says, Thou shalt not, it implies the opposite. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Implies, Thou shalt have God above all other gods. It's also important to note that when there is a, a broad heading for a greater sin, that all lesser sins in that heading come under it and are also prohibited. It says you shouldn't murder. And didn't Jesus say, Your anger also condemns you? That is forbidden. Here's a good one the children would like to remember. The fifth commandment says, honor thy father and thy mother. But it also includes what Paul said in, in Ephesians chapter 6. Fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. So these are your activity concerning the law. However, the law itself also acts. Let me give you four activities very quickly and we're done. First of all, the law convicts. When, when the law penetrates the heart, it convicts of sin. This is why people want the Ten Commandments taken down. 
It's a sledgehammer that hits you between the eyes and it says you are wrong. And we don't like to be told that we're wrong. The written law convicts us and the reason that it does is because it acts on the code that's already written in our heart. And when it acts on that code, it causes us to be stirred up, to be convicted of our sin, and we don't like that feeling. And so the way to get rid of it is to get rid of the law. Secondly, the law condemns. The law says that you must be punished for the wrong that you do. Isn't that a proper function of the law? I mean, what good is the law if, it, if there isn't any provision for the lawbreaker? The law condemns. And in the end, it says that you're going to face the righteous judge who will reward you according to your transgressions. People also know that. And that's why the dominant religion in the world today is a religion of works. Uh, they believe that eternal life can be had by doing good things, and so they convince themselves that they're more good than they are bad, so everything will be okay. They know that the law condemns them. So to avoid that, they think that I need to be good. Well, what does that lead to? What, what comes next? Well, the law restrains. It condemns, and because they know it condemns, it begins to restrain. Now, whether it's for the right or the wrong reasons, the law is a deterrent to sin. The Bible says that our rulers are given to us to enforce the law as a deterrent to sin. According to Romans chapter 13, rulers are a terror to evil. That's what Paul wrote. They are to enforce the law. That means that they have God's responsibility upon them to act justly or they're going to be judged when they don't punish the wicked. Evil is restrained by the law. That is what makes the world a habitable place. This is why we're able to live together, because evil is restrained by God's law. This is why I would not want to be a Supreme Court justice who voted to take down God's commandments. They gave us what we got, didn't they? They gave us what we got, a society of evil men without any idea who is going to restrain us. Fourthly and most importantly, the law directs. The law directs the sinner. It shows him that he's guilty. Its conviction and condemnation lead him, direct him to go to God to seek a remedy. He can't find any mercy in the law. We've already said that. It doesn't have that attribute. He can't find it there. He has to go to God. He must go to God to plead for mercy and grace and forgiveness. And so it leads him to God to plead for his soul. This is why gospel presentation should not begin with grace. Because a person needs to know that he owns the condemnation. He needs to understand that he's under the wrath of God. That the law of God is against him. That he can't do anything about it. And so then the sinner is driven to the cross of Christ. Seeking the relief of the burden of his sin. And so the law directs him. But then the law also directs the saved. We're saved by the grace of God. We don't live independently of the law. As the psalmist said, the law directs our paths. It is a lamp to our feet. It is a light to our path. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. How? By God's law. The Bible says the law is a mirror that shows our blemishes. It tells us what we need to correct. It leads us in the ways of righteousness. In short, what the law always does, what it was always intended to do, was to point us to God. So whether we're saved sinners or lost sinners, 
The law is always going to direct you to God. To live with the character of God, you must have his law. So, we're now at the place to begin. We go into the study of this law with a promise and with expectation. As a child of God, as we enter into the study of the Ten Commandments, what you should say in your own heart is, God, if this is what you've told me to do, if this is what this means, then I will do it. I promise you I will do it. You can't be happy, you can't be blessed, you can't be close to the Lord unless you do. If you tell me, Lord, to do this, I am your servant. I am your servant. So we go in with that promise to obey. Then we come out, secondly, with an expectation. God, if I obey you, you will make me like you. That's what the law is intended to do, to make us holy, to be like God himself. So we expect him to make us like him in his perfect love. Teach us to obey you and to love each other. That is the whole duty of man. Keep the commandments. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now as actually broken people. Nothing that we can claim as our own, no goodness that we have within us. Those of us that are saved, we realize that there wasn't anything that we could do. The law condemned us. The law justly condemned us. There was no hope for us. We couldn't find any mercy in it. And seeing how far short we fall, that we can't reach you the way that we are, then we knew that we had to come to you, that your Holy Spirit led us in the right direction that we needed to go to seek a remedy for this. And that is the salvation and the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. As Christians, we understand. I pray for anyone who is lost here today, that they need to see that they cannot escape the condemnation of this law by anything that they can do. There is a day of reckoning that's coming. And when we stand before the righteous judge, he'll open up this book. He'll open up the laws that have been recorded for so many centuries. And he'll begin to go down the list. And we'll find that the person who hasn't received Christ as Savior has nothing there to cover any of his sins. Not the least of his sins. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.